Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. Today we're talking about what we at CJR felt like we had to talk about, which is Donald Trump's recently announced bid for the presidency. We, like most journalists I know, have very complicated feelings about this. On the one hand, we don't want to pay too much attention to Trump because this is somebody who has gotten excessive amounts of attention and knows expertly how to manipulate the press. On the other hand, he's running for president. He's a former president. He right now is the front runner for the Republican Party, or at least one of the front runners. So how do we think about covering Trump going forward, knowing what we know about his record, knowing what we know about how he uses the press, knowing what we know about how the press in a lot of ways failed in earlier coverage of him? So as we were thinking about how do we tackle this, we began to think it would really be nice to have a somewhat outsider's perspective on this. So we found someone in David Smith, the Washington bureau chief for The Guardian. David took that job in 2015 as Trump was starting his first run and has covered Trump throughout. Earlier this month, he was at Mar-a-Lago when Trump announced his candidacy. And I'm thrilled to be joined by him. Thanks again, David, for coming on. Thank you. There's so much to talk about here, about Trump, about Twitter, but let's start. You you wrote a fantastic sketch piece out of Mar-a-Lago the day of Trump's announcement. Can you just recap sort of what the vibe was there and, and what that sort of looked like to you? Yes. Um, Mar-a-Lago is very grand. So we were all in a uh, white and gold ballroom, very elaborate, over-the-top, gold leaf ceiling. And I think I counted about 16 crystal chandeliers. There were about 33 American national flags, I think. Um, And guests poured in. And they're a kind of uh, Florida nouveau riche set, I would say. Lots of uh, suntans and jewelry. Older crowd? Yes, um, most older. Although a few of that that, that younger Trump um, set who... uh, you know, you imagine being being hustlers on on Wall Street uh, or whatever, but uh, but different from the crowd that comes to a a Trump rally, uh, of which I've been to many, that's for sure. And and, and so the atmosphere built um, over time as that crowd came in and everyone was chatting. There were some some MAGA hats. There were people posing for photos. And of course, uh, as at the rallies, there was uh, Mike Lindell, the uh, My Pillow chief executive, prowling the room, berating reporters for not writing more about voting machines in in meltdown and spreading his conspiracy theories. But after all of that, when Donald Trump himself uh, took the stage just after 9pm and delivered his speech, I would say some of the energy sagged. It was uh, like a deflating balloon. He was pretty low key, low energy, lethargic, as far as when we're used to seeing with with Trump, there was no... uh, trundled down the escalator at Trump Tower this time, no bellicose rally-style speech. He almost stumbled out his uh, declaration that he was running for president. And of course, everyone cheered uh, and applauded. But um, yeah, it was uh, yet another strange evening, and you could not really use the word uh, electrifying to describe it. And the crowd um, was sort of similarly muted, or or did they try to rally? Uh, It was a bit of both. I mean, I would say 
at the moment Trump uh, announced his candidacy, um, sure, there was uh, a lot of, of whistling and cheering and a forest of, of camera phones um, in the air, sort of snapping the picture for posterity. And yeah, it was it was not a sort of complete damp squib of atmosphere. But at the same time, uh, as the speech uh, rambled on for more than an hour, a line did form of people uh, trying to get out. They'd had enough. And later that night in a bar nearby, I, I talked to some Trump supporters uh, and even the people who absolutely adore him and will vote for him uh, admitted it was a bit lower energy than uh, that they would have liked. And you know they blamed his advisors for trying to persuade him to be, quote, presidential, close quote, and, uh, and not scare the horses. Yeah, you wrote, uh, the Trump who took the stage seemed an aging champ returning to center court, only to find he's holding a wooden racket. Did you and your colleagues at The Guardian debate whether you should go down there and, and do this piece? Yes, um, as, as we do with Trump rallies um, as well. On balance, we decided that it was uh, an important event to cover. Um, a former U.S. president announcing that he's running for the White House again is news even though amusingly Rupert Murdoch's New York Post buried it on about page 26 or 36, I think, and described it as, you know, Florida man runs for president. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, important story. And as you mentioned, I, I wrote a sort of satirical political sketch, if you like, where whenever possible, I, I like to be in the room to do those so I can soak up the atmosphere, speak to Mike Lindell, which I did, um, talk about the guests, uh, just talk about the mood and atmospherics, um, rather than covering it off TV, which um, sometimes we're forced to do. And, you know, journalists can sometimes take that shortcut. And the odd thing is you can actually sometimes hear better and file more quickly when you're uh, watching these things on TV. But uh, but but for this, you know, I've, I've covered Trump for many years, went to his rally when he announced he was running for the 2020 nomination. So yeah, I was I was certainly glad, glad to be there. And you know, Mar-a-Lago has obviously been in the news with the classified documents he stored there. So I think it's it's good and important to, to get a flavor of uh, what that is like. Yeah. I mean, but there is this debate now going on in the political press and in the press more broadly about how much attention to give Trump, which is a kind of a weird thing, as you point out. I mean, he is now running for president. He is a former president. He is I mean, depending on who you believe, either the front runner in the party or one of the front runners in the party. But he also is a kind of craven attention getter and knows how to manipulate press. How have you yourself thought about that? Like, how, how do we cover this guy now in this race? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I think one that we debate and wrestle with constantly because of all the all the tensions uh, you describe. He's a former president. He's a significant political figure with a, a huge base. So he should be covered. But on the other hand, He's a carnival barker and deliberately manipulates the media and spent decades in New York uh, doing that. So I'll give you one example. When um, Trump held his first campaign rally after January the 6th, making his comeback from that, I thought it was important to, to be there and cover it again. But I did not begin my report talking about him or, or quoting things he said in his speech, which unsurprisingly included many lies about the election on January the 6th. Um, I, I tried to make the story more about his supporters. Why are they still following him even after January the 6th and everything else that has happened? Why do they line up for hours for this guy? 
why this phenomenon. And uh, I made the story more about them and had uh, you know quotes from Trump lower down. And and I think that's just one example maybe of for us, especially perhaps at the Guardian, where we're both American based but also very international. You want to talk about the Trump phenomenon. You want to talk about why do some people support him? Are on others now being switched off and and maybe not run articles which just uh, cravenly say you know today Donald Trump said this or today he tweeted that or truth socialed whatever. I think context is uh, is always uh, very important as part of this, but it's it's an ongoing uh, conversation which I think we will certainly see heading into twenty twenty four. Yeah. So you became Washington bureau chief of the Guardian, the year that Trump announced his first run. And and as you mentioned, you've covered him all throughout. And one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is because you're both there in D.C. covering this, but you're you're writing for an international audience that has a different perspective on him and on, on the American sort of political scene. Do you have a sense of how much the rest of the domestic D.C. press corps is going to be approaching him differently? Or do you fear that it's going to kind of revert back to this obsession that we've had the last two cycles? Whenever I'm asked these questions, I suppose the first point I always make is that the media is so so not a monolith. So the answer to most questions is always yes and no at the same time, I think. Uh, I, I think certainly there will be some outlets, especially conservative ones, that will revert back to endless coverage of, of Trump. What about the lack of a better term I come to call them, the kind of meet the press crowd? Indeed. I, I, I do think cable news especially will have learned some lessons from 2016. And just to dwell on that for a moment, uh, I think they made some understandable decisions that had negative consequences. I mean, you know, during a Republican primary if a producer had a choice between yet another Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio rally, rather boringly talking about policy, or the Donald Trump circus coming to town, just this off-the-wall TV celebrity thing, and oh my God, he's going to say something outrageous. Uh, it was very hard to resist the temptation, I think, to cover Trump. And of course, once he was leading in the polls, then that became a circular argument and more and more self-justifying. And ultimately, you know, one TV executive said, Trump is bad for America, but he's great for us and our ratings. Sadly, that calculation went through. And I, I, I believe and hope that TV news will have uh, learned some lessons from that. There, there will not be wall-to-wall coverage of Trump rallies. And we, we, see that, we see that a lot now where the rallies are often um, ignored. There'll, there'll be much more um, instant uh, fact-checking and again, I think we've seen that uh, recently. So um, I, I do think TV will learn. And as for as for newspapers, I mean, I think to be fair, even in 2015 and 16, the New York Times, Washington Post and others actually did some great reporting on Trump. Maggie Haberman of the New York Times has pointed out that the biggest offenders perhaps were decades earlier when Trump was rising in New York. Um, in those days, the press gave him a very easy ride and allowed him to build this celebrity reputation and uh, this image of a successful businessman. And perhaps that's where the damage was done. And, and actually 2016, whether it's the Access Hollywood tape or a, a whole host of other stories, people who read those papers were left in no doubt of uh, who Donald Trump was and what w- they were getting when they voted for him. And then I think, you know, during the entire Trump presidency, I'd say probably the Times and the Post and also Axios. And uh, if I can you know, immodestly say sometimes The Guardian and, and, and others um, did did some great reporting on, on, on Trump. And so I think a lot of that will continue. So I, I do think it's a very, um, it's a very mixed uh, picture. 
that's a good point that you can't talk about this as a monolith. There was this kind of contradictory problem in 2016 where there was a lot of coverage, but there also was a reluctance to take Trump seriously as a candidate. And I think those things kind of butted heads against each other. Yes. Um, I interviewed Bob Woodward last week about his latest audiobook, The Trump Tapes, and asked, asked him this question about uh, how the media could and should cover another Trump candidacy. And, you know, and he made the point that the massive, tremendous difference this time, of course, is that we know what it looks like. We've had the experience of Trump four years in office, and, and he thinks a lot of the reporting should just focus on that presidency. That's the story you want to tell, um, whether it's his epic mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic, January the 6th, uh, just, just so, so much else that we have to work on. And I, I do think that will be important uh, both for the media and, and more generally uh, politically, that he's lost his novelty value. He's lost his uh, shock value. In, in 2015-16, it was all about Here's an outsider, a businessman going to drain the Washington swamp and shake up the status quo. And, you know, he benefited from running against Hillary Clinton, the personification of the status quo. Uh, now, obviously, you know, we've lived through a Trump presidency. The landscape looks uh, very different. Um, so I, I think that will feed into a lot of the media coverage. Yeah, though you did point out in your piece about uh, when his, he announced at Mar-a-Lago, he's still trying to run as an outsider. Yes, exactly. Even though, you know, what we've seen in the reaction since then with Republican donors and Republican establishment, whatever that means now, figures coming out against him, that there are some echoes there of, uh, of 2016 that it could be the, the Trump MAGA movement versus the Republican Party. And of course, we all know who won that one first time around. You know, The Guardian obviously has a, there's a profile of people who read The Guardian, usually liberal, progressive people around the world. And now increasingly, that's also true for the Times, maybe the Post. One of the themes I think that's going to emerge here, and one of the themes I think has been important in the last few cycles, is this question of what do you do if you write about how damaging Trump is to the country or how damaging his policies may be, and people ignore you or don't care that that's the case? And it really comes down to like, how immersed do we need to be as journalists in the effectiveness of what we do? Yeah, because I think part of what you're getting at there is this binary media ecosystems. But, but just like, I just at the top of my head, probably 95% of your readers are pretty convinced that they know all they need to know about Trump. I don't know, actually, because I think that maybe true, uh, perhaps even more so of the, the New York Times and Washington Post, the, the Guardian, we have the big advantage of um, no paywall, all the content is free. Not only does that mean we reach people around the world, sometimes very easily and accessibly, but, but even in, within the US, I've knocked on doors in Independence, Missouri, or in um, parts of Wyoming, and been surprised that people say, oh yeah, I read The Guardian, I like The Guardian. And, and I on my Twitter feed, I notice sometimes that I get uh, retweets or, or negative comments from Trump supporters who don't like the latest article I've written that is critical of Trump. So that that, that I think helps us that we we, we can sometimes uh, penetrate and, and break through. But in in general, um, I, I'm afraid I, I certainly don't have solutions to this this broader issue that we've seen, where Trump, obviously with his attacks on the media, fake news, an enemy of the people, has helped frame that conversation that, you know, by definition, 
anything that um, CNN or the New York Times writes about Trump must be fake or false or political attack in, in the eyes of his um, supporters. You know, that's become that sort of sealed logical paradigm that he has there. And, and what we saw, I think, reinforced yet again during the midterms was a lot of Trumpy candidates now only give interviews to niche right-wing conservative uh, outlets. Uh, in some cases, even tried to ban the, the so-called mainstream media from their their rallies. So, in a very divided America, yeah, I think we have a very divided media landscape. The Times, Post, others can do big, in-depth, hard-hitting investigations on on Trump, and what we've seen over the years is that very little of it sticks. On the other hand, I suppose should also add the caveat to that, that we've seen elections are incredibly close, very tight margins. And so if a mainstream media outlet does a story that's damaging to Trump, if it changes only a few thousand minds in Michigan or Wisconsin, who knows, that might actually be critical to the election result. Yeah. I mean, this whole, the whole topic makes me uncomfortable. Here you have a, a person who's bad for the country, um, but is, is it our job as journalists to affect the vote, right? Or or is our job just to, to tell people, here's what's going on, and here's what it would look like if this guy comes back? Yeah. I mean, I and I think, you know, many newspapers, for example, deal with that. They, you know, they have their opinion section, don't they, with an editorial that that literally endorses a candidate and can, can say things like, you know, here is why Donald Trump is unfit for office. But the other side of that firewall where I work on, on news, I mean, I get, I, I get to write those sketches that you mentioned that can, that can be pretty opinionated. But um, for, the, for the most part, uh, I think as news reporters, our, our job is to put the facts out there, put the closest approximations of the truth out there and, and let people decide. And that means that if there is some scandal around Hillary Clinton, that has to be reported. You can't just kind of sit on it because, oh, my God, you know, if we do that, then maybe Clinton will lose to Trump. That's not the right thing to do. Obviously, we're about to see House Republicans um, investigate Hunter Biden and his laptop and scandals there. I think that's a that's an interesting flip side to this whole discussion we're having in terms of how is that covered and is it played up or played down? And I, I think you have to judge to try and get it right. And if there's at least some smoke there, then you still have to to write about it. And of course, in that sense, Republicans and Trump and Fox News have become their own worst enemies, because with something like Hunter Biden, the temptation now for mainstream media, so to speak, is to to look away on the assumption that it must be a right wing hatchet job. And, you know, if there actually is something there, it might not get covered as it as it would do normally. So how how do you think the coverage of Trump is going to be different, given this implosion of Twitter? Yeah, well, a lot depends on whether Trump himself returns actively to Twitter. Obviously, Elon Musk has reinstated him, but we await um, Trump's tweets. Let's just say Trump just can't resist the attention. And, and, and Musk has been baiting him. Yeah, that's right. And isn't it funny how one starts to see more and more parallels between those two? You know, Musk is running Twitter the way Trump ran the White House, really. And if Trump does come back, then... I think a bit like the campaign rallies, um, you certainly have to report his return and then judiciously report the tweets. But I think maybe whereas in the past, the default was, here's a Trump tweet, let's write about it. Now the default should probably be, here's a Trump tweet, let's ignore it, unless it really is newsy of, you know, he's actually doing something or he's gone one insult too far or, you know, it's maybe it's a jab at DeSantis or something that tells us something about the Republican uh, primary. 
my recollection is actually, you know, as the years went on, we got more and more cautious about reporting Trump tweets, partly because they were full of lies and mendacity and deceptions, uh, and sometimes racism and sexism. And then partly also because, again, they, they lost their novelty value. I mean, if you remember in 2015, 16, you know, every tweet was, was breathlessly covered by everybody. They were turned into chirons. <laughs> That's right. Whereas by 2019, 2020, it was more of a shrug of, uh, oh, there's another Trump tweet. It's kind of so what? You know, we know he's mad or whatever. But um, uh, I mean, and I do remember, uh, and again, this is part of the way the media works. On a, on a Saturday morning, if you're looking to fill a newspaper or looking for some fresh story to write, in lazy journalistic terms, a, a Trump tweet was very useful. Okay, here's the president saying something new. It's a bit outrageous. Let's cover that. And I, I think, again, probably best to resist uh, those uh, temptations. And then if Twitter collapses um, generally, that'll probably be good for everyone's mental health, probably good for the journalistic ecosystem in, you know, so, so much um, craziness uh, goes on there. How, how, how are you thinking about your own um, Twitter usage? I mean, I, I see a lot of journalist colleagues leaving. Are you, are you staying for a while? Yeah, I'm, I'm staying for a while. I will think about it. Elon Musk is not exactly a paragon of, of virtue, but I suppose maybe it's analogous to uh, more traditional old school Republicans who have seen the Republican Party you know, suffer this hostile takeover by Donald Trump, but they don't want to quit and walk away. Don't want to switch the lights off in the motel sort of thing. Uh, they want to they want to stick around and, and and fight and either sort of try and change it for the better or wait until things things turn around. So um, uh, you know, why should we allow ourselves to be kicked off by Musk's megalomania? Have you all thought much about how you will distribute your work if if a place like Twitter goes away? I'm not no, and I'm I'm probably. Not the best person uh, to, to answer this question in that, uh, unlike many of my colleagues, I, I don't promote my own stories that much on, on Twitter. Um, maybe I'm too bashful. To... <laughs> you got a good handle, though, Smith in America. Yeah, I, I used to be Smith in Africa when I was based in <laughs> South Africa, and uh, somehow Smith in America was still available. So, I mean, everybody has their own approach, don't they? I, uh, I tend to use Twitter uh, so for some you know, live reporting, if I'm at a press conference, and I got a huge bump in followers when I was at the Oscar Pistorius murder trial in South Africa, and uh, and you know, you know Trump press conferences now now Biden. Um, I don't really use it much for expressing my own opinion. I do link to other articles that I'm interested in, but the the, the bottom line answer to your question is that um, I think the Guardian we're, we're very active on on Facebook and other social media platforms as well. But again, we also have that advantage that the website itself is is free um so i think a lot of people find us in in other ways and so i've i've never seen statistics that suggest twitter is a is a huge um source for us in terms of you know linking to us let me just ask you finally so you're you know you you lead the coverage out of dc for the guardian and i and i'm just wondering how you view an upcoming presidential race now with trump and whoever the other Republican candidates are. I ask because I've seen other Washington reporters talk about a sense of dread, partly because of the attacks on journalists and the threats, but just generalized <laughs> dread. 
are you like, wow, this is going to be an awesome story. Can't wait to get going. Or are you like having to like take a heavy breath and move forward? I think for a lot of journalists, it's uh, probably both things are, are true as a human being. And I'm, I'm married to an American. I, I have American children in school here. Yeah, there's a sense of dread of, oh, God, Trump is still around. We're going to have more of the misogyny and racism and incendiary tactics and just the attacks on democracy. I think as a journalist, I remember uh, Jim Acosta of CNN once saying, you know, he's like a, a kid in a candy store. There's no doubt covering the 2016 campaign was journalistically thrilling and exciting and just something very new and, and different. It's very galvanizing. It's an adrenaline rush. Perhaps as a comparison with uh, war reporting, which I've done a bit of as well, where on a, on a human level, this is this is devastating and, and tragic and truly horrifying on a, on a journalistic level. It, it makes you get up every day. You, you want to tell these stories. You want to inform the world that these things are, are happening and that does quicken your pulse. You, you feel that energy with it. So I, yeah, I, I would say um, both things are, are true determined really to yeah follow the Trump story through to what, what might finally uh, be its conclusion. And years from now, if I, if I write journalistic memoirs, I, I assume uh, that the Trump era will have to be the first chapter because it has just been such a, an extraordinary and, and dangerous uh, period of American history. Um, and let's never forget the, um, the Trump presidency was incredibly dark and damaging for millions of people, uh, children in cages at the border. So it's it's very important to be um, to be serious about it and hold these figures to uh, account. Um, and just just one last thing I'll add, which I didn't get a chance to say earlier, was uh, one useful approach to reporting on Trump and what he says is the so-called truth sandwich. Instead of just blindly reporting what he says, and then you know the old school model of you know Republicans say this, Democrats say that, and we have to be even-handed. You know tr Trump changed all of that. Now I think it's useful to explain the reality, give the context then maybe allow Trump to have his quotation, but then beneath that, provide the corrective, have the, have the fact check, hence the, hence the truth sandwich on either side of what he says. David, thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs>